This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore, this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally, mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm Brandon Pollan and I am one of two co-hosts and of course as always I'm joined by my other F. Scott Field. And today we have a very special guest on today who is the director of Nova Southeastern University in Tampa, Florida along with being an associate professor at the same university. Today we welcome Mary Blackington. Now Mary also has extensive clinical experience in the realm of neurologic and geriatric rehabilitation. Her primary teaching responsibilities at NSU have been in neuromuscular courses with emphasis on instruction related to motor control, motor learning, tests, measures, and neurologic examination, and neurorehabilitation interventions. And she has numerous peer-reviewed publications, and her clinical research interests include balance and fall prevention. She is a geriatric certified specialist, a certified expert in exercise for aging adults, an APTA certified clinical instructor, a credentialed fellowship graduate of the APTA Education Leadership Institute Fellowship, and she is also the co-chair of the Education Leadership Conference, which is an event that is co-sponsored by the education section of the APTA and the American Council of Academic Physical Therapy. She is also a reviewer of numerous journals, including the Journal of Physical Therapy Education and Journal of Neurologic Therapy. Now, Mary, first of all, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to talk with us. And I know your CV, you have a lot more on your CV that I didn't get to in there, but you know, was there anything that you'd like our listeners to know about you that I didn't mention? Well, uh, thank you both Brandon and Scott. First of all, I'm humbled to be here and uh, I love to talk about education and teaching and learning. Um, so this is really a sort of a sweet spot for me and I appreciate this opportunity. Um, I know that I'm here because of my role as a director of a hybrid program, but I'd really like to say that what I love about what I do is that I bring my clinical work together in motor learning and neuro rehab and uh, health education uh, with my academic interest in teaching and learning. Um, and what ties all of these together uh, is the fact that it has to do a lot with the brain and neuroplasticity. So what I mean by that is whether you're learning, you know, a critical concept about clinical reasoning or you're learning how to communicate with a patient or how to perform a complex psychomotor skill, or even when you're teaching your patient, you know, how to do a, an exercise or, or trying to retrain somebody post-stroke. In every one of those situations, in order for something to happen, the brain has to change. And so, and that is neuroplasticity. And even more importantly to our conversation today, practice, repetition, experience are the key ingredients to make the brain change. Um, and this is critical. And the cool thing about it is that everything I do, practice, uh, repetition, and experience is important. So I like to uh, tease people, those of us that are, do a lot of neuro rehab, we like to say the brain is sexy and we know it. Yeah, good point, Mary. Uh 
you, you actually wrote an article back in 2013 for PT in Motion about the hybrid program, and uh, we'll link that up in our show notes there. But it was actually ironic to read that you initially were the biggest naysayer to this model at NSU, and now here we are, you know, for our listeners who, who don't know what a hybrid learning program is, and um, what kind of made you change your opinion about that? Well, let me go back for a second. To, it's going to sound kind of basic, but, you know, you can deliver instruction in many ways. In other words, where and how you deliver it can be traditional, which is in a brick and mortar classroom and the teacher and the student are there at the same time, right? So that's been around for ages. And then there's an online classroom where the teacher and the learner are separated by distance. And sometimes they get together synchronously like we, you and I are right now. And then other times it's done asynchronously. But what hybrid learning is, is the combination of those two modalities into something that's called blended learning. Um, and I'm, I'm always quoting these authors, but Garrison and Vaughn like to say that hybrid learning is the thoughtful fusion. Um, essentially, that thoughtful fusion means you're combining the best of both worlds, right? So the best of face-to-face -face learning, which includes that, you know, in PT, that hand-over-hand -hand kind of feedback, no, place your hand here, or those intensive debates you might have about topics with the things you can easily do online. So we can, you know, very easily provide lectures online. That's, that's a no brainer. We have the technology to capture my screen, my videos, my face, if you want to see it. Um, so that's easy, but it's, it's the choosing of what goes online and what goes face to face that I think is the art of teaching in a hybrid learning. Um, it, it, one more thing to say is that hybrid learning is not a pedagogy or a belief about learning. It's just the way you deliver it, because there's a lot to be said for what your beliefs are about teaching and learning. Um, and that brings me to the answer to the second part of your question. And that is, I was the original naysayer because, you know, like most people, I was trained in a traditional classroom. I know how heavy we are in lab-based learning, and I just thought, how is that going to work? The two things that changed my mind were this. First of all, my experience of more than 20 years as an educator, which you learn a lot when you're, when you're teaching. And then also my doctorate in education gave me the, you know, the theories and the foundation for how to make decisions when I was doing a, uh, you know, creating a hybrid program. And so after originally saying, no way, this is a terrible idea, I started to think about how could it be done or what if, you were to do it in a way that would engage people. So, you know, to think about it, what I call the magic or the secret sauce of learning, it doesn't happen in the classroom itself, okay? It's not at the moment that the sage on the stage is delivering like these really great words, right? It's when the student, after some point, maybe at that point or later, begins to integrate what that person's saying and when they apply what they've said to some kind of principle or when they bring those ideas into the clinic or when they, you know, organize their thoughts for a test and, and organize that inf information. So what that means is I guess I'm, I'm what's called a constructivist. My philosophy on learning is that learning happens when you give people the chance to apply. So where you teach it really, really doesn't matter. Um, the second thing I realized is that from teaching, now I taught both in, in a problem-based format and also in a traditional stage on the stage in a classroom format. 
And what I learned from that is that you can be together and somebody can be really disengaged with you. Teachers can inspire in the classroom, but they can also inspire anywhere. So I knew once I started thinking about it that that it was feasible, but that you should you were going to have to be selective and really think about how people learn. Yeah, Mary, that's actually really encouraging for for somebody who's currently engaged in an educational doctorate program. It's good to know that I, I might be able to apply some of this stuff uh, over different venues and different avenues. Um, but what would you say are some of the most common myths and misconceptions about the hybrid learning program? Wow, there are a lot of them. Um, and some of them I started with and you know I had to get over them. Uh, but the first is that that hybrid learning is not real PT, right? Or that it's PT light. And you know, remember, as I said before, as someone who subscribes to a constructivist philosophy, learning doesn't happen when someone else speaks. Or as my dean, Dr. Wilson, likes to say, um, telling is not teaching. So because learning happens in the, in the brains of the students when they apply, when they recall information, when they practice, the classroom space doesn't matter. So that's, that's a big myth that it's not real learning. Another myth, and a lot of our applicants and students come kind of thinking this, is that if you're in a hybrid program, you teach yourself. And that is absolutely not true. We have lectures like anybody else. Um, we provide a very, very structured format for learning. We have weekly to-do lists. However, you have to be organized. So if, if teaching yourself means you have to motivate yourself to, self to click into, you know, the course management system, uh, whether it's Blackboard or Canvas or whatnot, you have to be organized, but not you don't teach yourself. Other than we all teach ourselves, right? Because you, your teacher says or does something and then you do something with it. The other thing that we learned is that we originally thought that like all of the lectures would be online, but most of the psychomotor teaching would be face-to-face. -face. But we learned something early on, and that was you can begin to instruct that psychomotor skill using really good videos, especially videos that are well-constructed, meaning they're not all shaky and poorly, poorly done, but you can do it with real patients. And that begins to give people sort of a mental picture, right? So if I never did ice hockey before, if I saw a video of ice hockey, I've now started to develop a mental picture of this thing called ice hockey. Now I might not be skilled in it, but by introducing things online, our students can come to the classroom really prepared. So that's a big myth. Something that's kind of close to my heart uh, that I'll tell you is that some people, um, and we've had to overcome this objection with some of our, our clinical educators, our CIs, is they think that our students are going to be inferior because they weren't always in the same classroom as the teacher. And um, in our case, we, we back end a lot of our clinical ex, uh, experiences because our students are working. So, you know, again, being in the same room with someone doesn't mean you're going to learn any better. So that's definitely a myth. And the last one that I'd like to say to future students out there and future teachers is that some people think that hybrid programs, because they're flexible, mean they're easy. And that is absolutely not true. My students are, most of them are working adults. So they're juggling work, school, family. Many of them are parents. So it's not easy. You must, you know, you must be organized. You must be really focused. And that's it. That's, that's my list. <laughs> nice, Mary. And I think that those are great points to bring up in that. And I totally agree with what you say in terms of it doesn't necessarily matter. Like it can be whether online or live because 
I mean, as long as the educator is engaging, facilitating the environment for the student to be able to learn, you know, at least for me, I learned most of the stuff after I went through class, after I processed it, and after I kept reviewing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't speak for anyone else, but at least that's for me, and I totally agree. Now, I realized too that you were talking about like how it's a fusion of the two best models, and you mentioned a couple of the thing, couple of the aspects of my next question in there. Um, but my next question is, what are some other benefits for students going through a hybrid program? Like, if I'm a, if a potential students looking into a program like this, what would some benefits be to this type of a program compared to the traditional model that you haven't mentioned already? Great, I love that question. I think the number one benefit is flexibility for different reasons. Okay, the original intention was to create a program that, for example, somebody could be uh, working as a full-time PT tech or a PT assistant or in another job, maybe they have a job with benefits that they can't lose because they're a provider for their family. So the flexibility is good because it allows people that work, regardless of whether they have a you know, daytime job or maybe they, they waitress or waiter at night. So it gives them the flexibility to learn when they can learn, um, except for those times that we are on campus, which is a very fixed set time that you can't miss. It gives flexibility and I, I like that. But then there's also the people that regardless of whether they're working or they have to work, they like the flexibility because of their the way they learn. So I almost want to say there's two extremes on this. There's the person that needs a lot of repetition. You know, they're just someone that needs to listen to it again and again and again. And I think it's really good for that person. Or what about the student or learner that they hate sitting in a classroom? And typical PT schools for as you know, focused as we are on movement and activity, boy, there's a lot of sitting. Uh, when I taught in Fort Lauderdale, students sat like six hours a day. Um, yeah, they got to get up for lab, but so people that like to move, you know, you can listen to a lecture, pause it, take a run, go back to it. And in fact, you know, my understanding of the brain and how learning works, that's actually really good for you is to forget something a little bit and then go back to it. And then there's the student that just really, you know, is so whether it's because they're curious or because of what's happening in their life, they want to go ahead. And the flexibility of a hybrid program gives you some of that. You don't have to like, sit at the pace that everybody's going. And uh, it's funny because sometimes I like to ask my students, so listen, do you, do you listen to me at regular speed or fast speed? <laughs> because some people are like, come on, talk faster. And uh, so that's, that's the flexibility is the number one thing. And you know, geographically, I know also uh, South University has this too, but I've got students all over the country. So there are people that live in places at the nearest PT school. You know, if you add traffic to it, it's like, somewhere up to two hours a day. And imagine four hours a day of commuting because they can't leave their family or whatnot. Um, so that geographic flexibility is great. I think, I think some of the other benefits um, is that because hybrid, we're not looking at people every day, it's not synchronous. We tend, at least for my program, we tend to add extra assignments to keep people on track. And they're not, you know, papers. I'm talking about, you know, uh, record yourself explaining um, what phantom pain is to a patient. So we do things like that because A, we want to keep people engaged and B, we feel that people need to apply learning. So, you know, we are, we do believe in active learning. And uh, so for students, they may feel that they have additional work than just sitting and listening. But the whole point of that is to apply it so that it gives meaning to them. So I think that's definitely a benefit. Another thing that is really 
important to me is that students do have to be self initiators to get through a program and they have to be organized. And you know, that may sound like that's a constraint to you, but to me, think, think about your clinical practices right now. Don't you have to be organized and a self initiator if you want to you know, manage your practice, keep up with education? Um, nobody whispers in your ear like, Brandon, Scott, you know, go listen to this lecture or go to this CE. You, you initiate that, you drive it. And I think the fact that students have to say, yep, this is my time to learn, I'm gonna go online. I think that's an important skill that we're trying to promote. So yes, I think that there's some benefits there for students. And I think that those benefits, hopefully, and, and we're gonna be doing some research on that, will last a lifetime as a PT. Yeah, Mary, you bring up some really good points. And in reflecting back on my more traditional program, you know, to be considered the experts in movement, uh, we really didn't do a lot of movement as <laughs> PT students. I know we, we sat a lot. And uh, so, so I think that, that that's a really neat aspect. But for, for potential students and, and people interested in the NSC program, uh, could you give a uh, kind of a, a layout of the, the price of tuition and how, how that kind of works? Okay. Uh, well, let me tell you a little bit. So, so our program initially was designed as an expansion of our Fort Lauderdale program, but I'm now separately accredited because we realized, you know, traditional and face-to-face, -face, they're, I mean, traditional versus hybrid are so different. We were having a hard time staying the same, which is what an expansion program does. But that program, the Fort Lauderdale program, the traditional program, a very successful program, three years traditional, like both of you probably went through brick and mortar. So, you know, two and a half years or so of didactic followed by, you know, your clinical internships, although they had a lot of ClinEd integrated throughout the whole program. When they designed this program, we stretched it out to four years with not because we think hybrid is should be stretched out, but because remember our, our prospective student was theoretically working. And it is hard to work 40 hours and take you know a full credit load and learn and, and do it well. So we kind of stretched it. And we also made a model that said, we're gonna go three weeks, three and a half weeks of online learning, and then four intensive days of face-to-face, -face, followed by another three and a half weeks, four days of face-to-face. -face. So this model kind of sets things in nice chunks or like monthly units. And then and we follow that all through the curriculum until they get to internships. So the, the tuition is actually the same as it is for the three-year program, but it's kind of prorated over the four years. Right now, it's about at for the four years of tuition, it's about eighty-six thousand, uh, which sounds you know horrific in my mind since I I probably spent about ten thousand back in the 80, early eighties. But believe it or not, it's mathematically the mean in the country, which which is uh, it's pretty sobering if you think about it. So I I would like to say that the other thing about the development of the Nova program is that because our goal was to design it for working adults. The one thing we changed a lot from Fort Lauderdale is, you know, they have a lot of what's called, you know, integrated clinical experiences or ICE throughout the curriculum. And I had an advisory board when I was developing this and Sheila Nicholson, who at that time was president of the Florida Physical Therapy Association, but on my advisory board and she's a very sharp person. And I had originally had an eight week clinical kind of halfway and she's like, so, so let me get this right, Mary, you're going to develop a program for working adults, could be a PT assistant, it could be you know, whomever. And then somewhere in the middle, you're going to say, 
hey, employer, give that person eight weeks off because you, you want them to have a clinical early on. She goes, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to like it. So, you know, that sort of, I went back to the drawing board and said, what can we do? If we can't have all of these ICE experiences, what can we do? So we sort of rethought about it, opened our minds to, to some creative options, and we do a lot. So we, we bring patients into the classroom. Uh, students will do one day um, while they come to campus. We'll have experiences. Um, we do a lot of, you know, we'll go to, for example, a skilled nursing facility and apply learning, but it will be in sh very short, like one day periods at a time. We do have a week-long internship in there, but we, we did back end our clinical education, which is very unusual. Most people are pushing for more integrated experiences. But the interesting thing, and I know I'm running on about this, I'm sorry, but the interesting thing is that our director of clinical education compared the CPIs of our students with our traditional program. And in the first 12-week clinical, at midterm, our students were a little behind the, the get-go, meaning they were slightly lower than the Fort Lauderdale students. But by the end of that first of three rotations, they, it was equivocal. So, you know, for what it's worth, we, we do back-end ClinEd for a reason, but we're not finding it's a problem. And, and to be honest with you, I was most scared about that because, again, I believe in experiential learning, um, but we found other ways to do it. Because I'm a huge fan of active learning, I think pedagogically, when you're doing a blended or a hybrid classroom, you have to think active learning because you're always trying to think of ways, how can I keep the student active in this? And so I think that's a good thing because there's a lot of evidence out there, um, you know, as I said before, repetition experience application, that those things enhance learning. I think that that's really great. Now, I presented, you know, about our program nationally, and the biggest, and I, and I pushed the active learning piece, and the biggest pushback I get from faculty all over the U.S. is that, well, you know, our students don't like to do assignments, and our students don't like it when we make them, you know, do things, and I'm like, and, you know, my response is, I'll admit, a tad sarcastic, and I say something like, but our students don't like exams, but we give it to them, and you know, my son didn't like rules, but I had them for him. And, you know, the idea, because we know, you know, um, there's a great book, by the way, I'll segue for a minute, called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning by uh, Brown, Rodiger, and McDaniel. But in that book, it compiles all the evidence we have from kindergarten all the way through, you know, med school type of education about learning. And, and because we know application is good, we can't ignore that and we can't say, ah, oh, but the students don't like it. You know, we have to embrace it. So my first thing is that pedagogically, if you embed active learning, I think it's wonderful. I think some of the drawbacks is that you have to be okay with being imperfect. And what I mean by that is if I'm standing in front of a classroom and if I make a mistake, I don't really pay attention. Like I might go blah, blah, you know, if I trip on my tongue. When somebody's recording, uh, which we do, you know, again, most of our lectures, 99% of them are delivered online. So we record using a screen capture system and people make a mistake and they get very, very upset. Um, and then they stop the recording. And so, you know, a 35 minute lecture turns into a two hour, two hours of trying to do it. And I, I say to people, you're not going to be perfect. You know, if my dog barks in the background, I laugh at that. <laughs> you know, like, oh, Roxy, stop. So, I mean, we're humans, and I don't think that because you're recording things, you have to be perfect. 
Um, so that's another thing I would say is that teachers that have taught in the classroom, they're not used to the fact that you're going to make mistakes or, you know, to get, to get uh, the first time I tried to do um, like a podcast type of thing, it took me 20 minutes to do a two minute pod little, you know, voice recording. So you, you have to be tolerant of the fact that there's a learning curve, but the more you do it, the better it gets. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that, Mary. I, I think this morning was a prime example of that. You know, it's it's just about rolling with the punches, especially when it comes to technology. Um, could you possibly give our listeners kind of an overview of the hybrid programs curriculum and, and kind of how that lays out across the, the years? Sure. So, you know, again, we took the three-year Fort Lauderdale curriculum and we stretched it out to four years to make it possible to be, you know, working, whether it's part-time or full-time. So our curriculum, um, again, every, from the very start, from summer anatomy type of thing, uh, whatever the day of the first day of the semester, there'll be three weeks of online learning. And in that online learning, we do recorded lectures. Uh, we will do, we will use videos, video demonstration. Uh, we might link to, you know, a web page and, you know, in professional issues, they might navigate to the APTA website. Let's take a look at it or let's go to PT Now and look at all the resources on PT Now. So we do a lot of uh, lecture and providing foundational work, including videos of clinical skills or patient interactions, et cetera. Then there's these four days that are set. We have a four-year calendar that students come. And in that four days, what we do is put together and apply all of the things that have been building up. And that's that thoughtful fusion that Garrison and Vaughn talk about. So if I had, uh, for example, if I taught a particular test and measure, let's say I taught how to do the functional gait assessment, when they come to class, we're going to do it together. We'll bring in patients to do it with. Um, they've already seen it. They've actually already scored it. But when they come to class, they try it and they get immediate feedback. So that's sort of our model. And our curriculum is pretty traditional in that it starts with the foundational sciences and then um, moves to the clinical sciences. Um, and that goes all the way till the, the first summer of their fourth year. And after that, they go through nine months of internships, um, full-time, each internship is 12 weeks. When they, through all the didactic curriculum, if, if you live in California, you'll fly to Tampa once a month. But in the clinical education curriculum, when they're in those 12-week internships, they go to clinical internships wherever they live. So it could be in California or Montana or wherever that might be. So I'm not sure if that uh, fully answered it, but that's sort of the big picture of, of how we work our program. Cool, Mary. And, you know, in terms of, like you said before, with students, they can go to different clinical rotations near where they're at. Does, does NSU, like, have a specific, like, a, a big list of clinical spots that they have that, you know, that they've got, you know, the clinic with? Or how, how are the sites kind of set up in that regard? You know, that, that is really challenging um, when you draw students from all over the country. And, uh, you know, I have to give major props to my director of clinical education, Dr. Robin Galley, because, you know, every year our students come from different places. And so every, although we have many, many clinical sites because, you know, Nova's had contracts for years, when somebody for the first time, for example, uh, went in our last uh, group of grad class of 2017, somebody lived in Idaho, we didn't have any internships there. And so what she does, um, along with her support coordinator, is start reaching out and developing relationships. And 
you know, that for those clinicians that are listening, you know, if you get a call from uh, Robin or Casey, um, what they're saying is that you, you, our student lives and wants to work forever in your state because that's where they're from. They've been living there. And instead of saying, you know, uh, oh, our students are all Floridians and they're going to, they just want to go to Idaho because Idaho is cool, right? And I winked on that, by the way. But uh, so anyway, so yes, it's, it's challenging, but we've done it every year and uh, we do everything we can to get that, those rotations in the uh, geographic preference of a student. Mary, what would you say are some of the lessons that you and the faculty at NSU have learned from your experience that maybe you'd like to share with a, a faculty of programs that may start incorporating some elements of hybrid learning into their program? Um, well, I, I've touched on a few, but I, but I can go on and say some more. I think that um, the first lesson is that you have to be willing to experiment and try. So, you know, there's, there's nothing really to experiment in a classroom, although when you're a new teacher, you will. But when you're in a hybrid program, you know, there's constantly new technology happening. Um, so what we did in the first year in 2011 is not what we do now. We are, we are really using much more mixed media and things like that. So a good example is, you know, back in the early 2000s, when people went to a hybrid or online class, it was all about the discussion board. And without sounding too dis disrespectful to the discussion board, that's kind of boring, right? Because it's all text-based. But what if, what if instead of a discussion board, you could record your voice and have an asynchronous but real voice debate with somebody if you wanted to use that as an example? So I would say use technology. And, and that takes courage because as we found out this morning, as I've learned, sometimes technology uh, is hard and, and there's errors, but the more you do it, the better it gets. So the second thing I'd like to say is that no matter whether I'm in a classroom or if I'm in a blended classroom, I really, it's all about the learning and the light bulb to me. You know, I've, I've heard other people talk on your podcast, you know, what, what makes you wanna do this? It's because you really want the light bulb to go off. So it's really not about me. It's not about me being the sage on the stage. It's not about me being, you know, some important, most central thing. It's really about student learning. And, and that's the same whether I'm hybrid or face-to-face. -face. And I think, I think people that are outstanding teachers are people that get that. Um, you know, something that's interesting about being a teacher in a hybrid program, you know, we all have technology. We have like help centers, right? If somebody's computer has a problem, and you would think that the help center is where students would go, but they don't. They go to the teacher. And so you have to understand as a, as a teacher of a, in a blended program that students might look to you, hey, listen, I can't upload my video to YouTube. I don't know what's happening. You know, and we always say switch browsers or turn your computer off, turn it back on. But we, we're not intended to be the um, technology experts. You don't need to be. And, in, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not the... I don't uptake technology as quick as, you know, some of my peers, but you do, you do realize that you have to respect the technology and, and not be afraid to try it. So those are some of the big lessons. I think some other things is that that, that blending of online and face-to-face -face when, when I'm initially, a lot of us had a lot of assignments, you know, like in a semester, 36 assignments plus tests and, and exams, and we realized that it was too much. And so we've learned to trust um, we've learned to, like to find the sweet spot of giving assignments that add meaning to people. But then, you know, again, we all, we do high stakes quizzes and and uh, practicals, of course, face to face because we don't we proctor there and things like that. But 
it's it's a process and I think again always trying to get better uh, we, we share a lot with one another we have what we call pre-game meetings before every semester and post game and particularly in the post game meeting so it's like a huddle that people do in a clinic kind of say you know what worked what didn't work so sometimes I learn from my peers and or they'll learn from me and and so we all get better together yeah, no, Mary, I think you bring up a lot of good points. And, you know, first of all, thank you so much for all the stuff that you're able to talk about regarding the program, regarding some theories and stuff more on learning. And to me, it truly opened my eyes. And I feel like now I have a really good understanding of, you know, hybrid variants, what they were from before. I think it's very good. You know, Mary, we usually wrap up each episode by asking this one question to all of our guests, as we're so curious to what everyone thinks. But you know, the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, um, DBT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Well, I have to tell you, and uh, I just, I'm very candid, so I'm going to be, I'm going to be truthful with you. This is the question that has kept me up at night because I feel like it's really important what I say here, right? And, um, and I also realize that depending on the week, I might, I might shift my answer. But, but here's what I've got right now. Alexander Aston, he was a, an educator, and especially in the area of professional education, he, he said that we shouldn't only look at educational outcomes, we should pay attention to the processes and the experiences that lead to those outcomes. And I think that all of us, clinicians, educators, everyone, need to, be, to pay attention to both of them, both the processes of learning, the experiences we give, and the outcomes. And I think we have to vigorously fight the tendency to make assumptions, uh, especially assumptions regarding teaching and learning. So, you know, PT practice, we're doing a really good job of moving to evidence-based practice. And I think we need to do the same academically. You know, just because I learned in a brick and mortar classroom doesn't mean, 35 years ago, doesn't mean that it's the best or the right way. And even though PT has traditionally been accepting students based on their numerical picture, like GPA and GRE, and yes, we know they're predictors of, of licensing exam success, Aren't there other ways to define success? I mean, isn't the person with that great um, ability, a, that good patient educator, isn't that a fantastic clinician? Um, so I think we have to question, and we can't assume that models that work in other professions, whether it be pharmacy or medicine, we can't assume that they're gonna work in PT. We really have to, we have to explore. And I guess finally, I'd like to say, I'm with Gail Jensen, I, I think, I think what we need is very well-designed educational research project that includes clinicians that are teaching clinically, faculty teaching academically. We have to design them really well, and we have to systematically look at this big thing called PT education so that we can understand more and, and more importantly, be better at it so that the patients, which is why we're all here, so that the patients uh, benefit. I think that's it. <laughs> Wow, great job, Mary. That, that's a great take on that. W would you mind telling our audience uh, a little bit about where they can find you online and on social media? Okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm on social media, but most of the time. So, uh, so my email is maryb at nova.edu. If you have specific questions, whether you're a faculty member, prospective student, or a current student, if you're interested in teaching and learning, I like to talk about it. So you can email me at maryb at nova.edu. Um, on Twitter, it's Dr. Mary Blackington at Dr. Underscore Mary B. And 
uh, I'm on Facebook, so just, you know, search for me on Facebook. Well, awesome, Mary. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on. We really appreciate you talking with us and providing this great insight to our listeners. I want to say thank you so much for that. Thank you both very much. I've really loved it. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.